Okay, so today is uh, the 24th, and Proverbs 24, I chose verse 21. Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious. Wow, okay, so that's a great one. We've been in our series, Thrive, which is not, does not mean surviving, but thriving no matter what's going on around us. And the Lord wants more than our survival in this time. He wants us to thrive and, because you were meant to thrive. You were meant to thrive. And we've had an underlying scripture that's been the, the, the leaping off point for the entire series. And this is, comes from Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1, right at the very beginning of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And Jesus taught that, that, that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. He doesn't want us to be like people around us. But his delight, the, the blessed person, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And here's the promise of what, what's going to happen when that attitude about God's word is in your heart. He says this, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bring forth its fruit in its season. Fruit's going to happen in your life in its correct season. It's going to happen. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and, whoever, and whatever he does shall prosper. Wow, I want that. That's a picture of, of God's picture of us thriving. So we're in part five of our series, uh, Thrive, and we're exploring at this point in the series what it means to have a delight in, in God's word. Last time we talked about why we believe um, the Bible, and um, we examined some external evidence, and we talked about some internal evidence, and we talked about experiential evidence. Today, we're going to ask, why are these books in the Bible? Um, you know, why these 66 books? And did you ever wonder, um, you know, how was it that this handful of writings became the Bible? How did that happen? Did, did some guy just say, was it, you know, was it <laughs> some guy just say, hey, hey, honey, keep my dinner warm. I'm going to be down in the garage working. I'm going to write some more of the Bible, I think. Um, and so pray for me because when I come back, there's going to be more scripture in the world than there was when I went down in there into the garage. Is that how it happened? Did the person writing the Bible know that they were writing the Bible? You know, when they were writing it, did, did they drop their pen and say, oh, check it out. I've written another book. You know, this time it's more Bible. Is that what happened? Did they know that it was actually God writing the Bible? You know, this isn't me doing this. This is God. Did they know that? We know it was written over a period of about 1,500 years. We know it, it was 40 different people, 40 different authors that wrote all these different books that became the Bible. We know it was written in three different continents, um, parts of it in Asia, parts of it in Europe, parts of it in Africa. Did they know they were writing God's word? Did some people try and fail? I mean, um, you know, they finished their paper and looked at it and said, no, nah, you know, that's not that's, that's good try, but that's just not God's word. No. Did that happen? Did any stuff get in the Bible that was, you know, really good but not great, like, you know, B stock? Did any of that happen? I mean, this, I don't mean to be demeaning of the Bible. These are legitimate questions. People ask these questions. How did the parts get together? Was there a committee? I mean, I mean, did, did the human authors know that their, their writings were God's word? Did they get it right the first time, or did they make a lot, have to make a whole bunch of edits and retractions? Did, did, was it, or was it perfect, or was it smooth, like a, a masterpiece artwork in the Sistine Chapel? Did it happen like that on the very first pass? 
Did they say, God, let's, can we go over this again? Because I'm not quite sure I got this right. You know, people wonder why we have confidence in the Bible. And these are questions that we should be prepared to answer. So, I mean, I've, I've mentioned many times 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Scripture tells us that all Scripture is breathed, uh, God breathed. But we're going to start a couple of verses earlier to, to, to give us some context here because God wrote this book. God wrote this book. And, you know, what a simple and, you know, profound sentence for me to say to you, God wrote this book. The God of the universe who created everything, that God, who could have communicated with us any way that he wanted to, there were so many different ways he could have done this, that God decided that the permanent expression of his heart to you and to me would come in writing. So he wrote it down for us, and we have this book. Awesome. Awesome. I love that it's written down for us. So we're going to pass through 2 Timothy chapter 3, and there's a lot of stuff before we get to our, our, our passage that I really that I want to read for us today. Um, um, and it, it, the one we know is all Scripture is God-breathed. We'll talk about that some. But he's already talking about the Word of God before he even gets to that. In verse 10, he says, he says you, however, have followed my teaching. And, and then he says in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And then we pick this up in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Now, um, here he's talking about, I'll just keep going, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking here about having learned from his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, who were mentioned earlier in this passage. And if I could just pause there for a moment, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for, uh, for Beth and for Samantha and for the people involved in leadership in our children's ministries when they're here at church, um, because I'm grateful for what they learn here and the fact that it's so Christ-centered and the kids have fun. I'm really grateful for that. But you know, I'm especially grateful for parents who invest in their children to um, get the little one, their little ones into the scriptures. You know, I mean, Timothy was raised in a home by people who loved God, and if that family had been living now and happened to be living and members of our church family, I mean, Timothy would have been one of these kids doing memory verses. He, he was raised in the scriptures, and um, there are, there are uh, a lot of good reasons why we do memory verses. There's, it's, it's encouraging. It's fun. We love seeing God's word tucked into the kids' hearts. But here's what scripture says about that process and why it's so important. It says, okay, um, if, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, we want that for our kids. We want them saved. All scripture, verse 16, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's just no surprise here that, that, that Paul says to Timothy, who was probably one of the most notable or famous disciples um, in the New Testament, he says, verse 15, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That idea 
um, wise for salvation is really, really dear concept to me, to me personally. I mean, I, I shared with you last week about um, why and when I asked Jesus into my life um, as Lord and Savior, and I glossed over the fact that um, in that process that up until then, I was a senior in high school, and up until then, I was getting older, but I was not getting wiser. I was gaining knowledge, but not wisdom. And I was a young man of high school age doing everything except pursuing God. And I was wise in my own eyes. And, but through a mother's prayers, and but through um, the sovereign mercy of our God, um, I became wise to the ways of salvation. And how exactly does that happen? You know, verse 15 tells us that it happens through the scriptures. The scriptures. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that word in verse 15 for sacred writings, heroes grammar in the original language, this was the term that was used by the early church when they would be describing the Old Testament. So the heroes grammar um, is, is the sacred writings. That's the Old Testament to them. The word in verse 16 for scripture is graphe. And we see that all through the New Testament as well, graphe. That was the word that the early church used to describe New Testament writings. So they're covering the Old Testament here and the New Testament. So all through the early church, the New Testament called um, the, the New Testament was called the Grapha, those, those writings, and the Old Testament was called the Heros Gramma. And so in verse 15, when he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, then in verse 16 says, all Grapha, the, the, all scripture, when you connect Paul's thread here in this, which is really important, otherwise I wouldn't be taking time to go over this, it's, he's saying, all scripture the hierosgramma and, and the graphe are what are able to make you wise for salvation. All of Scripture. Interesting to note that they consider the Old Testament capable of leading you to Christ. That's all they had at the very beginning. And they were able to lead each other to Christ because of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Is that a skill set you possess? Because we should be able to do that. And the reason that I am standing here is because the Scriptures made my mother, my father, my, my, my sisters, my wife, my children, and so many of you. The scriptures made us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And the word of God makes us uh, wise in handling the problems of life. And that's, that's what the word of God does. And verse 16 begins with the word all. All of the writings. All of the writings. And this is where Loved ones, we drive down a stake. That word all. There's something about, you know, this is something about which we have a very strong conviction, a great conviction here in this church. All of it. All of it. Let me break this down, this word all for you, what, they're, what, what he's saying here. All scripture. He's saying all 66 books. All 39 books of the Heros Grandma. All, all, all 27 books of the Graphe. All of it, all 1,189 chapters, all 41,173 verses, all 3,566, 480 letters. And no, I didn't count them. Somebody else did. All scripture. The word there is God breathed. All word is breathed out by God. Theopneustos. That word means theopneustos. Theop is God. Neustos is pneumatic. We get our word pneumatic from it. It means breathe out. 
all of these scriptures are breathed out by God. And this is important because this, this word combining both God and breath, you know, what you're doing right now, what, what I'm doing right now is all based on this right here. We believe that all, all scripture is God-breathed. That's what we believe. We believe that God himself was blowing life into the, the human author. We believe that God was breathing the, the life and the power and the direction into where he wanted these writings to go. God breathed it into the offer. And this is essential. It's, it's, it's essential because of where we're going to go next and that God wrote this book and, and, and that is this. The Holy Spirit chose the words. The Holy Spirit chose the words. <laughs> and the Bible is always and forever, it seems like, under attack. You know, people are poking away at the corners of what we believe and, and trying to undermine the authority of the Bible. Another word that we would, we would use for, for all here is the word plenary. Plenary. Plenary means cover to cover. You probably guess where I'm going to go on this topic, but have you ever noticed how, um, you know, you drive up and down the streets, um, you know, in Rochester or Centralia or Tenino or Olympia, and uh, it doesn't matter which city you're driving and you're driving by churches all the time that have, you may not know this, but there are, many of them have what's called a neo-Orthodox view of the Bible. It's heartbreaking that churches that once thrived under the authority and the teaching of the full counsel of God's word are, are now just barely hanging on. They're just, some of them are nearly empty and, or closed or they've turned into a bingo hall or something else. And they've held to the neo-Orthodox view of the Bible. And here's what that means. It's the Bible if it speaks to you. It's God's word if it touches you. It's God's word if it moves you. It's God's word if it connects with you. Which, of course, leads to this. Anything that connects with you is God's word. Go for a walk in the forest. If the trees connect with you, they're God's word. That's neo-orthodoxy. That is not what we believe. And that's not what the Bible teaches. We believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, the cover-to-cover -cover inspiration of God's Word. And this is important. We believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Verbal means that God chose the actual words, not just the concepts, the actual words. God wasn't, you know, coaching the authors Okay, well, let's write something now about the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Kind of keep going with that. Yeah, that's, I like where you're taking that. It wasn't like that. You know, it wasn't like God said, hey, let's write some stuff about love. I'm really not sure what to say, but oh, oh that's good. Yeah, keep going. That is, that is not what happened. You ask, well, come on, Terry, how do you know that? I mean, some of the things were written were written quite a while after Jesus walked the earth. So how do you know that they didn't forget some things or get them a little bit off? John helps us with that in John chapter 14, verse 26. And this is Jesus talking. Jesus says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So there it is right there. It's not a problem. The third person of the Trinity is on it. Okay, I mean, the third person of the Trinity is capable of helping the writer of Scripture remember what Jesus said. 
And then it even goes further than that, flop forward a couple more chapters into John chapter 16. And this is Jesus talking again. And he's, he's sharing on the same topic. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I mean, I have a lot more to share, but you're kind of on your limit. And so we've kind of, this is going to have to wait. And, and he goes on, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And there's the path for us. Father to Son. Jesus wanted to tell more, but there wasn't time and we weren't ready, basically. So Father to Son, and then, of course, to Holy Spirit. And, and then on to a human author into the book that you're holding in your hands right now. Wow. I mean, okay, it's right there. It's Father to Son to Holy Spirit to Apostle to us. Awesome. Awesome. And God is really, really serious about it. He, he, he's deeply, deeply invested in his word. Here's how serious you, you know he is. Revelation, the last book in uh, our Bible, chapter 22, the last chapter in our book of the Bible, starting in verse 18, which is almost at the very end. So this is at the very, very end of the Bible. Starting in verse 18, comes this, God's comments about how seriously he takes his word. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Have you read the book of Revelation lately? I mean, if you add a single word to God's word, you're getting all the plagues in Revelation. That's not good. He goes on, verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is really serious to God. Now, I've heard the arguments, well, the, what that's meaning is if anybody changes the revelation, really? You're going to hang your hat on that? You're going you're to say, well, God, I found this legal technical loophole, so you have to let me change the retina. No, that, you better think that through. That's, you really want to stand on that? Um, by the word, that word book over and over, book, 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 book in those two, it's the uh, Greek word biblion, from which we get our word Bible. Okay, so, um, but listen, if you think that this is only referencing the book of Revelation, go to the other end of your Bible to the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses to the book of Deuteronomy at the very beginning and with the second giving of the law. And here we are in chapter four, verse two. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. Adding to it, well, we should do these things too. It's Christ plus this, and or take to it. Yeah, God didn't really mean you had to stay away from those things or do those things. It's okay, and you're taking away from the things of, of God. You know, put another way, God is saying here, in effect, you know, if you mess with my book, I will mess with your eternity. Leave the book alone. <laughs> That's what the word is telling us here. But what's going on in our day? You know, centuries went by and everything was, you know, don't mess with a book, don't mess with a book. Now, today, all kinds of people are messing with the book constantly. Now, I could give you a lot of examples. I talked about some last time. But I think it might be better for us to talk about the ones a little closer to home. So I want to kind of 
talk about the ones on our own front porch. Um, and I'm going to give you some examples. And um, listen, I'm not saying that the, the examples I'm going to give you are not helpful tools um, when they're properly used. But okay, three, three areas to watch. Number one, be very cautious about study notes. Now, maybe you have a study Bible. I have a study Bible. My, my favorite and go-to Bible is a study Bible. It's got a lot of commentary and notes in it. There's a lot of things that help, you know, help me understand and connect things together. Um, but be very, very careful about those margin notes. They're not God's word. Only the Bible is the Bible. The study notes are people's, people's best way to help you, they think, and they, may, they maybe are, but they're not God's word. There's a distinction that needs to be made, so study notes. Second one is watch out for marketing uh, packaging, whether it's the high school Bible or the homeschool Bible or the mothers of preschool Bible or the farmer's Bible. There's all kinds of packaging. It's marketing that's going on, and it's fine, but only the Bible is the Bible. And then the third caution I want to give you, which is probably the most serious, it is the most serious, watch out for the readability above accuracy Bible. Okay, By that, I'm referencing Bibles that are have been rewritten into contemporary uh, English for us to make them more readable. And um, by doing that, they have messed a little bit with accuracy um, to, to do that. Now, for centuries, translation theory was, you know, we'll let it be a little bit bumpy because we want God's actual words here. Okay, that was the theory. And now we have translations that don't seem to care what the actual words are they just want to make it smooth. They want to make it smooth for us. And that's a problem. That's, that's just a problem. I mean, let me give you a simple example. Um, and, um, and by the way, I'm not going to tell you that I'll paraphrase, you know, throw them all away. I'll come to that in a minute. But here's a quick example of a... Tr- first, I'm going to give it to you in a translation that I absolutely trust, the New King James Version. And this is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5. This is random passage that I chose to give you as a comparison. Okay, here's Jesus talking. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, so that's, that's a passage that is pretty much following the English translation of the original words. Now I'm going to read to you a passage from a paraphrased version of the Bible. It's a very popular one. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, okay? So same exact passage. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. God flavors. Okay. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and it'll end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. I don't know what God colors are. (laughs) I'm not mocking God's word. I'm just saying this paraphrase, you know, God is, God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. Okay, I, I'm done with this for this illustration. But I, I, the question I would ask, is this what we want to do with the Bible? You know, this should be just a little bit offensive to us. I mean, but the people, this is what the people are doing when they write this kind of Bible. You know, let me tell you here what God's trying to say. 
That's kind of the concept for, for a paraphrase. And I believe that it dishonors the verbal inspiration of Scripture. And it does that in favor of honoring human creativity. Now, I have to say that when I was seeking the Lord but not saved, I went to my mother and I said, hey, Mom, is there a Bible that if you give it to me, I could actually understand it? And the reason for that is because the, 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 the truths of Scripture are foolishness to the unsaved. There's, you can study that out, but that's true. So I didn't get it. Well, she wisely gave me a paraphrase Bible, one that was kind of like this, and it helped me. I read the historical parts, and I was reading some things. And in the same time, I was occasionally attending a church service, hearing a pastor preach from a translation of the Bible that was reliable. And, um, and when I opened my heart to the Lord, it was because of the things that I was being taught. It wasn't so much because of what I was being read. And, and so here's what I would say about paraphrases. They have their place, and they're useful. But if your paraphrase is your primary Bible... I would hope that a very short time after you come to know the Lord as Savior, that you would outgrow a paraphrase. You would just outgrow it and want a serious Bible that would actually let you know the words of God, not what somebody else tells you he's trying to say. I mean, the Holy Spirit chose the words. The Holy Spirit chose the words. And going from Hebrew or Aramaic to English there isn't always a perfect word-for-word translation or equivalent. Sometimes the translator struggles and, you know, to get from one language to the other, but they're doing the best that they can. And maybe it needs two words instead of one. I mean, but get as close as possible to a word-for-word, even when it's bumpy. I mean, I, I, it's a challenge. I get it. I get it. But accuracy above readability. Accuracy above readability. I want God's word to me. I want to know what God said, not, not what someone tells me he's trying to say. You know, I, I think we're never helping God when we de-emphasize his word. God wrote a book, the Holy Spirit chose the words, and then the apostles wrote down the words. Often this is where people struggle, you know. You know, I don't have any trouble with the fact that God wrote the Bible, um, but why couldn't he do it without using men? You know, why do he have to use people? Because I know what people are like. I mean, I know what I'm like. Um, and people could have messed it up somewhere. You know? Couldn't we have like, found it buried in a hillside and got some special glasses to help us read it? You know, no, that's called Mormonism, and that is not how it happened. God actually chose to work through human authors. And we're told in scriptures how it happened in 2 Peter um, 1, starting in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, knowing this first of all, when you see a phrase like that in the passage, slow down what you're doing, set aside all the other things that you think are important because God says, this is the most important, pay attention to this first. Okay? That no prophecy of Scripture, graphe, again, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Wow, good to know. Not one verse came from a man. Not one single verse in the Bible came from a man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Notice, not by the will of man. However, he, he did, God did use their personalities. I mean, it wasn't like dictation. He didn't dictate it, but he used their personalities. The King James phrase in that same passage says, holy, the new King James says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God did use each author's personality, and it comes through. It's easy to see when you spend time reading as you get to know their different characteristics. You know, Peter Peter was a bit random um, as a character. Some of the things that he did in Scripture, there was one point where he, you know, was aimed for a guy head, but he cuts off his head, but he actually cuts off the guy's ear. Um, he seemed to at times put his foot in his mouth. That's Peter, a little bit random. Paul, Paul comes across, and he's more like a lawyer. He's, he's always making this argument, and it's very logical, and, and he leads you from A to B, one step at a time. But notice that God didn't just use any old person to write the Scripture. Notice the words, holy men of God. God chose the kind of human authors that he could communicate through um, pure vessels. He chose, he chose clear channels. He chose men with a, a download capability who, who had a little bit of life experience of downloading God's heart and, giving, and passing it on to people, to men. So today we're trying to answer this question, where did the Bible come from? How did God get it you know, um, to us? And, you know, and we're now coming towards the end of this, to the answers to this. But some would say, okay, I get the God part. I get the man part. I don't get the book part. I mean... 1,500 years, 40 different authors, 66 little books. How did those 66 books and not some other books, how did they end up in the book? You know, this is the part that nobody ever preaches on, and it's really the rest of the message. Um, The answer to that is the early church pulled it together. The early church pulled it together. The Bible was essentially completely written by about year A.D. 95, and there were actually, at the time, hundreds of manuscripts being passed around and distributed between churches and going from city to city and, and being copied over and over again. There were hundreds of them. And there also existed some you know, non-inspired writings at the same time, too. Some of those were useful um, for whatever reasons. Some were spurious, some were silly, some were heretical. And at the risk now of the next few minutes, me coming across like an absolute Bible nerd, um, um, I'm going to use some four. I'm going to use four twenty-three-dollar words, which are words that they would have been using back then to describe some of these different writings, and puts them into four different categories. And I'm going to help you understand what they were dealing with at the time. Okay, so, so the the, the first category is the word homologomena, uh, homologomena, and um, that literally means same word or agreement. Um, and uh, for the root words, are, are, we go into that right now. But these were books that were widely accepted by everybody immediately. Okay, yeah, that's God's word. We know that's God speaking. Everybody says, yes, that is. We're pretty much, so they're, 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 they stay. Those are, those are scriptures. Second word that they used to describe was antilogomena. Anti, antilogomena. Now, these were, these were books that were spoken against. That word means spoken against. Um, and um, th- these were books that there was some concern at first, but, um, you know, I'm not too sure, but then they were eventually accepted. Um, and in the Old Testament, there were five. Those were the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Ezekiel, and Esther. In the New Testament, there were seven that were not quickly accepted. Uh, the book of Hebrews, because they weren't sure who the author was, and uh, the book of James, because of its treatment of works, 
um, which was controversial then, and uh, for some, it still messes them up today. Second, not the book of James, but the concept uh, works. Second, Peter, because of authorship, they weren't sure. Second and third, John, same reason. The book of Jude, because he quotes within his book a secular author. There were some that had concerns about doing that. And then the, the, the revelation, again, they wrestled with authorship. Okay, the third big word uh, would be our word apocrypha, which you've probably heard. It literally means hidden or hard to understand. Now, there were 14 or 15 books in the Apocrypha, and there was a major battle about this in the Roman church. I mean, a, a knockdown, drag out kind of a deal. And most of the early church fathers said, nope, those are not scripture. They don't agree with the rest of scriptures. Those are not part of God's word. And the Roman church didn't accept them as part of the scripture. You know, they, they didn't accept them at first either. They said, no, they're not part of the word of God. But they, and they didn't accept them until the year 1546. 1,500 years after Jesus. And by the way, 1546 is right after the Reformation, right after the Protestant Reformation, um, the whole Martin Luther thing. And, and okay, so Reformation, people of the Protestant faith believed in the concept sola scriptura, which we've talked about before. Scripture alone, they said, they maintained, is the sole authority, the sole infallible source of authority for Christian living, for for um, faith and practice. The Roman Catholic Church officially holds the position that tradition and Scripture are equal as interpreted by the Pope. So um, the proponents of the Reformation would, were saying, up until the Reformation, they were saying, um, hey, you're teaching some stuff that's just not in the Bible. And what the Roman Catholic Church did at that point was they said, okay, well, watch this. And they grabbed up those books of the Apocrypha, which for 1,500 years, everybody said was not Scripture. And they said, those are in the Bible now. And um, I've way given you a short version of it. That is what happened. That is what happened. It's a very short version. Okay, and then the last big word for us is pseudepigrapha, and that means falsely attributed works. It's, not, it's like if I, if I came here today and I said, hey, here's a book written by Pastor Aaron, but he had nothing to do with it. I mean, it's obviously a false, falsely attributed work, and those were all kinds of crazy things. Everybody looked at those and said, those are not scripture. Those are nuts, um, and they were all kinds of crazy things. Um, Jesus did magic tricks as boys, turning people and things into mushrooms, stuff like that. Just there was there, Everybody agreed those are not the word of God. And this is the most important question, which takes us to the end of the message. How did they decide what was God's word? I mean, you're sitting here. You have this Bible in your hands, and nobody disputes the history of here of what happened. But how did they decide which books were divinely inspired? Here a little bit quick of history. Um, the early church shared their writings. They had these letters, and they passed them back and forth. And these were the writings of Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and Pete, Paul and Peter and other people. And a century after the birth of the church, they had hundreds of writings about Jesus, you know, who he was and how he lived and how to live as his followers. And most of the church agreed on what were the scriptures, what, were, what, what should be considered scripture. By the way, when you see the word scripture with a capital S, that's referencing this. Other faiths have writings that they call scriptures, and those have a little s. Okay, so that's the distinction when you see a big S. Until somebody tries to steal that, um, that symbol of, of God's writings, um, it, that's what it means. 
Anyway, most of the church had agreement at that point about what should be considered scriptures. But it was clear that some writings um, were authentic and others were not. So they started to ask, which writings should we follow and which should we just ignore? So Christian leaders from around the world would gather to answer that question and, uh, you know, which, Christ, which writings should be considered as scripture. And the process really was a process of weeding out the ones that didn't belong. And there was a Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then roughly around the year 400, for the very first time, all of the 66 books that everyone agreed, those are the scriptures, those are the inspired writings of God that came together around the year 400. And um, um, you know, here, here are the ways and the, the, the filters, if you will, of confirmation of divine inspiration. And you can tell anybody this. This is how they figured it out. Number one, authority. It was how Jesus taught and how these writings needed to come across. Mark 1.22 is an example. And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So do the words command attention? Do, do, do they ring with, thus says the Lord? Do they, do they, you know, when a man is heard from God, he speaks with a confidence and an authority that's confirmed in the listeners. It's confirmed by the Holy Spirit when the listener's hearing it. Okay, number two, authorship. Was it written by a man of God? Um, you know, was his life and reputation such that, that no accusations against him would stand? Was there favor and fruit and blessing upon his life? You know, this is why some books were initially disputed. Um, they weren't sure who the authors were. Then they wanted it to be settled, and once it was settled, they were included, and that happened. The authors of the New Testament writings were one of Jesus' disciples or someone who was an eyewitness to his ministry and his miracles or was someone who spent intimate time with his disciples. There aren't any people any longer writing scriptures. That's done. The scriptures are finished. So when you hear someone who says, hey, I've got a New Testament, a new New Testament, that's the writing of somebody other than God. Okay, so authority, authorship, and number three, authenticity. Does this book tell the truth about God and man and salvation? Does it explain that? Is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? By the way, that's why there are no contradictions in the Bible. It was very, very, very carefully screened and considered. I mean, we, we tend to think of ourselves and this generation as the smartest people who ever lived because we have toasters and cell phones. But, you know, these people, some of them spoke five languages before they were in eighth grade. And they didn't, you know, if they, didn't, if they couldn't sleep at night, they didn't get up and watch reruns of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> these are serious, intelligent people. Nothing wrong with the Brady Bunch, mind you, right? For you Brady Bunch fans, okay? Okay. I'm sorry. You can get an apology from me at Aaron at Crossroads.life, okay? So, <laughs> but these very, very intelligent people... Um, spent literally decades scanning every verse, every phrase, again and again. That's why the Apocrypha was not included, because it contradicted other scriptures. It had teachings that just contradict other scriptures, like prayer for the dead and um, salvation by works and purgatory and things like that. Those things were considered not biblical, and so they were excluded. And they were excluded for 1,500 years. Now, maybe you've noticed this also about God's word. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I'm confirming for you about the living nature of God's word. This is, this is not a human instrument. This is, this is not a man-made document. This is a living, breathing thing, this word of God. And I can tell you, you know, as long as I've been studying the Bible, which has been for a while, and I don't study it as well as many, over and over again, I have these experiences where God says, hey, Terry, what about this? And something in there is living enough to reach up and grab me by the heart or throat and say, come on, let's, let's deal with this. And it happens over and over in my life. It's living. It's not just to read and, and cover a spot to keep dust off the top of a TV. And the people who selected these books and pulled them together were being led by the Holy Spirit. And what they rejected, they rightly rejected. And what they gathered together, they rightly gathered together. And what they affirmed as living is living. And every person who picks up this book has to choose whether to accept it as God's word or, God forbid, not. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The author knew when he was writing that God wrote the book. And the audience knew when they were receiving it that God wrote the book. It was true in Thessalonica. It was true in New Testament times. And may it ever and always be true at Crossroads Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. It's the most miraculous thing that exists today on the presence of the earth, and that is a book of your words. And there's not a section of it that's complete by itself. It's the whole thing, the plenary, cover to cover. And they are the words you chose, and you chose to share it with us in this form. Thank you, God, for that. It lives and it abides forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And apart from the return of Christ, which, Lord, we long for and we do, still your word will remain and your truth will remain. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. It's the one thing you honor even above your name. Help us, Lord, to somehow attain to that, that we would give it that kind of honor and that kind of attention. Lord, help us to live for it and to stand on it and to find its truth to be all that you promise it to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name.